Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty and this is Talking Design 2019, episode number two. In this episode, we're hearing from a very interesting person who's um, really has so many strings to her bow, uh, psychology, design, uh, business, it's kind of the whole package. And I think we're going to learn a lot from uh, my next guest, uh, Dr. Janneke Blylavens. Blylavens, thank Bly- you, Stephen, for having me. Welcome to the program. Um, look, just a bit of background on on uh, Janneke. Studied psychology in the Netherlands, um, masters in cognitive psychology at the University of Groningen. Yeah. Um, PhD in at the Delft University. Uh, of technology, then you did a postdoctoral, and now you're senior lecturer in experimental methods uh, and design at the School of Economics and Finance and Marketing at RMIT University. And you're also chair of the Behavioural Business Laboratory. That's correct. Wow. <laughs> That's a whole interview in its <laughs> Sounds like it, a bit but, eclectic. But, yeah. um, tell me how your path kind of was formed in the first place because, you know, a lot of people stick to one area like psychology, um, but you've become, you've shown us that a very diverse background. Yeah, look, uh, I always say that interdisciplinarity is my middle name, uh, but that formed over years, of course. Um, My degree in psychology I loved because I learned to understand how people think, how people perceive things and how they process things in their brains and then how they react to that. In psychology, we mostly look at comparing squares to... Circles. Circles. And that didn't quite appeal to me. So I wanted to be a bit more applied. And I was then able to do more psychological research at a design school in Delft University of Technology because I wanted to understand how people perceive and appreciate real objects in the world. So that's when I entered the design area. And then, of course, the knowledge that I gather from that on how people appreciate product design is very relevant to marketers and other business stakeholders, which then led me to go into a business discipline. So you were saying previously you don't actually consult directly with designers or you do? They come to you or how does it businesses come to you or you Um, do research with a number of businesses? I do research with a number of businesses. This is mainly through the Behavioural Business Lab, um, where we look at how we might design interventions or services or products that people really want, and usually with the aim to have social change in some way or another, to really help people make better decisions for themselves. Look, everyone, you you work right across the different products. It could be things from runners, sand, you know, uh, recently, I got into trouble because someone in the industry, I, I used the word sand shoe, and they said, look, they haven't used that word for years. <laughs> <laughs> um, trainers, whatever they're called, but, um, you know, shoes, uh, how, a, how a retail environment operates. Tell me about some of the issues because, you know, everyone thinks they're an expert. When they're, I imagine a lot of people when they're starting a business and they they have it in their mind that they, I've just there's a, a need for this type of shoe and it could be the biggest flop. Like there's so many shoes out there on the market. You know, why were their shoe going to work rather than someone else? So what are the things you're looking at? So my research is mainly on what kind of 
principles, design principles and design dimensions we can utilize to make people appreciate product designs and find them more beautiful. So my latest research, uh, we identified a principle called autonomous yet connected. And what we find is that people find product designs more beautiful when people feel affiliated or feel connected to their group of people, but at the same time can also still feel like they're standing out from that group. And this is a principle that we've been able to show across a wide range of products. So even for staplers, we see this happen. And uh, this is based on basic universal principles that everyone um, uh, can use to make beautiful product designs. So give me a more tangible example. I present to you to, I won't say sand shoes, because that's really not the appropriate term, but say two pairs of runners, trainers, sneakers, whatever you call them. Um, what do you call them today? I call them sneakers myself. Oh, but, so I'll uh, be very know. modern and say sneakers too, <laughs> Janneke. But say we've got two pairs of sneakers, shoes, yep. um, and I look at them and I might see that they look quite similar. They might have high tops, they might have... Hmm. What do you see that others wouldn't see? Well, first of all, um, if I'm taking a designer's or a marketer's approach, I would know who my target group is, right? And what subculture I'm trying to uh, design for. And once I know that, I know that that group of people may appreciate high tops because all of them are wearing high tops and that makes them feel connected. But at the same time, then that high, the one high top that has a bit more color or a bit of shininess to them or something that is a bit odd and different will then make them feel like they stand out when they wear those specific high tops. Um, Janneke, do you think there's some things, just we're looking at high tops, you know, are there certain markets that are just flooded now with so many things that you perhaps advise people look in terms of sustainability, you know, do we need another high top? You know, who who is the, the market saturated in that area or do you always think there's something, a market, if it's done differently? Um, I, I, I think because... Um, the way we feel connected and the way we feel like independent human beings uh, is really dependent on who we are and who we belong to. So I think there can be as many high tops or sneakers as there are subcultures and groups. Um, and then um, the way I want to express my individual, uh, individuality then differs from the other people in my subgroup as well. Um, Janneke, do you actually uh, target those groups help people target those group or identify the group or is that up to the designer slash business doing that type of work? That, that's not my job. Uh, I would advise uh, designers and marketers to look at that though because uh, this is something that has been ignored a bit uh, in the area of design and uh, and marketing where we, we know that product designs are social symbols but we only often look at how they help us feel fit in but they don't look at how they help us feel, uh, feel different from that group that we fit into. And it is especially that balance that people are seeking. What's something, Yannicka, that you've seen recently that you could just tell it was so strong? Uh, a product that you were involved in, perhaps, and uh, was quite unique. Uh, most people would have said, look, don't go near it. But you gave the advice or you 
your input was, go for it. Is there something that comes to mind? It could be sunglasses or um, shoes or something that was kind of what, what, I mean, looking at your, you know, with your vast experience, what are the things that stand out in a product without, Uh, even if you, if there isn't something, what are the things that people are looking for? Well, I I don't, there's not specifically one uh, product that I can talk about, but I can talk about the concept where we um, can now um, create our own designs within a certain product category. So, for example, um, um, reusable coffee cups that we can now design in all the colors in the world that we feel we want. They're still the same design. They look the same. We belong to the sustainable group of people. We're the green people. Um, but my design with the colors, the way I choose them, are, I get to express my individuality. So this trend in the market has been very good and really on par with this principle of connectedness and autonomy. So it's not just with cups. It could be with any it, product. The idea that the consumer can actually feel like they're part of the process. Uh, that That is one part of it, but it is also everyone wants to express themselves in a different way. Uh, of course, not all brands uh, want to do this, right? They have a certain brand image that they want to maintain, but you can still then look into who is my user, who is the peop- who are the people that my brand typically mm. speaks to, and uh, and how can we help people feel connected but also autonomous at the same time. And I designed a skill that helps designers assess this if they want to. What is it, a series of... uh... A series of questions that helps designers figure out whether their concept design is hitting the mark, whether they are hitting that balance in connectedness and autonomy at the same time. In terms of when it gets to, say, prototyping stage, is that when you start... you? can get involved as well? This uh, this is uh, aesthetics that I'm talking about. Yeah. So it would be at the prototype stage and perhaps the styling stage. Um, but we all know from a design perspective and, uh, you know, it, design thinking that we need to think about who our people are way before we start designing something because we want to uh, really appeal to people's needs, right, uh, and people's basic needs. And this principle is based on that. So these are this is about seeking safety and also wanting to explore and accomplish new things. These are basic human needs that this principle taps into, and that is what designers do. Give me an example, Yannicka, that recently you've worked on that you can kind of follow the trail of from, you know, something that was an idea but really connected to a a subculture. I haven't worked on a subculture necessarily, but I have applied um, basic principles to a new design. So, for example, we designed a font that helps you remember called Sans Forgetica. And in that font, we looked at desirable difficulty. So it needs to be difficult to read, but not too difficult. Being a bit difficult helps us remember because we're paying more attention. But when it becomes too difficult, we we forget because we just can't process it. So this is another basic principle, psychological principle that drives our behavior. And when we use these principles in our designs, we are able to really create things that people want to use. So it could be even, say, a label for a fashion item that is perhaps... Uh, when someone's considering a label, something that's slightly skewed, so they, they're trying to work it out, and then that 
it becomes embedded in their minds. Yes, yeah, that's the principle, uh, and that would work very well. Yeah. So that is just one of the principles. You are probably also familiar with this principle that Louis uh, in the 1950s uh, called most advanced yet acceptable. Uh, we like things that are novel and new, but it doesn't, but not too novel and new because then it becomes, uh, um, you know, something that we reject because we don't understand what it is. So these universal principles guide what we as consumers find beautiful in product designs. Um, Janneke, where do you see us at the moment? Because we're in a fairly challenging environment. People yep. are very conservative at the moment, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you tell me differently, but isn't that the time to try new things when things are a bit sluggish? Or is that just, that's not the way people think? Um, I think that's how designers think and innovators think. Um, that may not be the general consumer base that thinks that way. It's uh, uh, We are driven by our e- evolutionary needs and safety and accomplishment are there. And my research shows that when I'm feeling threatened in my safety, I will do things to seek that safety. And I can do that by my choices in product designs. So, uh, for example, sunglasses are very in-your-face fashion items. When I'm not feeling too confident, when I don't feel socially safe, I will find a sunglasses or a pair of sunglasses that makes me feel fit in and connected better than if it stands out too much. So we, we mitigate that balance of safety and accomplishment and exploration. So throwing a lot of new, very interesting... Um, individual unique things out there while people are feeling threatened threatened maybe may not help them restore that balance in safety and accomplishment which is what they are seeking yeah so it's it's really it is that balance it's it's a matter of not pushing people over the edge exactly in difficult That's it. times but when i look at um and i'm showing my age now i'm a lot of a lot older than you are Janneke, but um uh, you know, I remember the early 80s. It was a very significant design period. It was the period of the New Romantics. Uh, the whole fashion thing was happening, spanned uh, ballet, the clash. It was a really um, creative time. Mm-hmm. And people were throwing caution to the wind. And that was one of the worst recessions in, worldwide yeah. in the early 80s. So that kind of goes to another well, way of looking at things. When things are down, um, shouldn't people be more adventurous? Well, I think what uh, what happened there, and this is an opportunity that designers can take up now, is designers were the ones that were being innovative and contemporary, you know, really yeah. pushing the, the, the boundaries, boundaries at that time. And the consumers followed much later, right? Yeah. And we know that in a recession, it goes up and down and up and down. So perhaps when it's down, designers need to up their game mm-hmm. so that when it goes up, consumers are ready to take because it was, it was kind of yeah. the early 80s was that creative period and then it really took off a few years exactly. later. So, you know, it wasn't just um, throwing caution to the wind. No. Um, when you're looking at, you know, the other thing is retail, you know, everyone's looking for um, the, uh, you know, the golden egg in terms of what to deliver in retail. Is that something you get involved in in terms of your research, in terms of retail design, or is that little bit outside your area 
Um, it is um, as an application outside my area, but of course the same principles apply. So um, just uh, placing the sneakers on a row or on a shelf is not appealing because we're so used to it. It's not new. It is safety that you're presenting me with. But I need to explore and accomplish because I need to move on in life. We need to learn new things, etc., because otherwise we'll get stuck. And so if you are able to provide exploration, accomplishment, new things in a retail environment, consumers will be much more attracted to that environment. And when people feel that positive pleasure from that experience, that is attributed to the actual product that they are buying. So you're creating a positive feeling that is attributed to that product, which means you're going to buy it. The um, Yannicka, when you're looking at products and um, doing the research and looking at the target market, you must see things, though, that um, are truly exceptional, really exciting. And can you already kind of sense the energy around something at a very early stage? Or is it something that you have to kind of sit back and still work out where it's heading? I feel like I can. Uh, I, I also can retrospectively uh, explain why things didn't work based on my knowledge of these Give principles. Give me an example of something that did work and something that didn't work. Start with something that didn't work and you kind of almost knew as soon as you got involved that it was a dud. Right. You um, don't have to mention a right, name. Right, I won't mention names, but like, for example, in car designs, uh, uh, there are uh, suddenly cars that have a very interesting um, bump to it or a, a, a new material added to it. and It hasn't been seen before. That hasn't been seen before and then is very much appreciated by the design uh, field. Right? It gets awards, etc., but consumers are not buying it. And what is very important here is that what is new and novel for a designer is completely different to what is new and novel to a consumer. And you just pushed it too far. And it might only be acceptable 10 years down the track. Exactly. And that is something that we call, for example, mere exposure. The more we are exposed to it, the more familiar we are with it, and then we start liking it. Okay. And what's something that has been, you could see straight away, it was just a winner? Ooh, uh, straight away a winner. Yeah, something that you just thought, yes, it's new, but it's familiar. Is it? Is it that idea of familiarity that people... That, when they're purchasing is, something, it can be new, but as long as it has its, it's something that, that they can kind of latch on to. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, examples, um, it's not just familiarity. So familiarity is really about what am I used to within a product category. Uh, you also have things like unity and variety, where it's really about what is within a product design that brings it together as a cohesive whole versus kind of uh, makes it look different from uh, itself. And then, of course, at the social level, you have this where I feel connected versus autonomous. And those are different kinds of principles that can be mm. utilised altogether. Um, but looking at these things, um, for example, um, uh, kitchenware that uh, started to become uh, or started to look like animals or puppets or humans um, or anthropomorphic, uh, 
gosh, I can never, yeah, anthropomorphing. Yeah. Uh, it was a big thing at some point, and that really worked. It was new and different, but we still recognize ourselves in it, and it's uh, uh, we c we can understand it, and that makes it um, um, quite interesting and beautiful to us. Is there a um, is there a movement now of people not wanting new products? Do you find that people are wanting to go back to the past more and more and replicate things from previous decades that give them that comfort? Because that often happens when things are a bit challenging. I'd say there is a group of people that would be doing that out of safety, but you can also see a trend, uh, for example, if I may, hipsters mm. that take that as a way of feeling autonomous and different and new, right? It's almost hip and happening to not be new and and not buy new things so that is also a way to show your autonomy and individualism um, and and this is actually the exploration and the accomplishment and not necessarily the safety side of things because you look a lot different from the majority when you are buying your clothes from op shops or etc right so for for some people that is a safety thing but for other people and other groups of uh, subcultures that is an autonomous thing a lot of people have said look fashion is one area um, particularly clothing i'm thinking of um, that doesn't move uh it doesn't move forward very quickly it's very slow they usually go one step back you know usually there's a period that is of inspiration it could be the 60s or 70s i mean we've currently got a big uh, input from the 70s in terms of fashion and I think that's everywhere and that goes into interiors and architecture is it just something that you could you you can kind of sense it's going to happen and there's a period where you think look we've done the 70s now I think designers have to start looking at the next thing uh, and I think it's happening. I think the 80s is about to uh, kick in and I the 90s. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that is a very typical example of it, uh, it giving a new twist to something that we already know uh, or that we are familiar with. Um, but for the younger generation... Who didn't uh, that experience di the 80s. Exactly. This is a very new and, and, and a new thing. So you're really uh, um, um, creating a new type of aesthetic even though for us, perhaps it doesn't feel so new. Yet, we can't take those pants that we never threw away out and wear them again. Because they always change it slightly. Exactly, yeah. So you kind of feel like you were, you know, you're playing dress up rather than presenting right. a new face. Exactly. That's it. What do you find, Yannicka, the most challenging thing with the your work that you're doing? Is it just people having coming in with strong ideas and not sitting back and perhaps just taking a breather i mean is it just people rush into things i i think for me the 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 biggest struggle and this is not just with designers or marketers uh, or um, other business stakeholders uh, it's with everyone it's assuming that you know what people want and not really looking back at who am i designing for or who am i trying to target with my marketing and communication and really having knowledge of what kinds of principles, psychological principles, are behind people's appreciation of product designs. And that's very difficult to get. 
It is, and that's why I'm here talking to you because yeah. I want to give that those tools to designers and marketers to to really tap into that. The other thing, Yannicka, um, is we're talking about big business. It can really cripple a business and almost put them out. I mean, if they've got um, nine or even say five successful products they've introduced and they've invested heavily in uh, one of those products, it could really spell the end if it doesn't work. It, absolutely. And it is it is very difficult to be innovative and it is very risky to be innovative. Uh, and that is also, uh, especially from a financial side, um, why designers and business stakeholders might not always ma uh, really work well together because designers look into the future and, uh, and, and don't have the data to back up their ideas, um, to really convince those business stakeholders this is going to take off. And this is actually one part of my research where I'm looking at how can we provide that data to designers and their concepts um, so that they can convince business stakeholders that this is a good idea. So I develop this skill, I um, uh, do rigorous experiments with them yeah. to really test their concepts before they go to market. Um, the other thing, Janneke, is, you know, things might work in Europe, um, but that doesn't mean they translate to Australia in any way. And, I mean, if we're looking at the fashion season, you know, fashion items, brown tends to be very popular in Europe. But, you know, if you walk into Australia, into an Australian shop or boutique, and it's all brown and mustards, it just doesn't work. And it doesn't matter if it's top of fashion and the researchers in Europe, in Milan or Paris, say, you know, mustard's the colour for this season, you know, that's something else that the people have to factor in. That's absolutely it. Uh, I have a research article on this where uh, we say that cultural differences make a big uh, difference in what people like. So we looked at China and the Netherlands, for example, and we found really big differences just in liking uh, rounded shapes more versus rectangular shapes. Where uh, Rounded in China. Exactly. And those are just such simple things that if you want to go global, you need to really be aware of those things. But even if you want to introduce the same design, your marketing and communication can compensate for that a little bit. So if your design is very novel, then perhaps you can place it in an advertising context that makes it look familiar. And, and then you're kind of dealing with that balance again and making it more accessible to the consumers. Yeah, no, look, it's a fascinating area. And people, you know, I think the thing is people just take it for granted that a pair of sunglasses ends up the way it does but it doesn't no absolutely not no one just throws out something new without doing a huge no. amount of research look these these principles these are uh, principles that i write up and i uh, investigate and identify but many designers apply them intuitively they have learned that these things play a role and designs that are out there apply to these role uh, these rules and principles um what are you currently working on? Is there something specific you're currently working on at the moment or is it top secret? Oh, top what, secret. What? I work with a few companies that I shouldn't be talking about. No, you don't have to mention names. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, I, what I'm very excited about is um, my research on, um, uh, on how we design things that change uh, things socially. And we have a project going on now with my PhD candidate, Johanna, uh, we developed a memory game 
that when people play it, uh, they become more socially inclusive towards other cultures. And this is one where we tap into basic psychological mechanisms of category, uh, categorizing mm. and uh, working with visual images, people become more socially inclusive in their behavior towards other cultures when they play a simple game. So this is my... This is what I'm very excited about because this is using design and psychology to really make change in the world. Yeah. Look, it's fascinating area. It's um, look, you've just got so much to offer. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank and you. really, um, I would have thought, you know, designers would be banging your door down to, to you know, and doing more consulting with people like yourself. Look, I, than- I'm always open to that. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, how do people find out about what you're doing? Is there a website we can look at? Yes, yeah, so it's very easy to Google my name. I, uh, I can make sure that you get that information Great. as well. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm um, on RMIT's website or Google RMIT Behavioral Business Lab and you can find me. Uh, it's very, uh, very easy in that sense. I'm, I'm all over Twitter and Facebook. Fantastic. And, yeah. <laughs> look, um, Thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you for having um, me. You, you'll make me think about every time I look at a product uh, <laughs> and um, in quite a different uh, light. So thank you for coming on. This has been Talking Design 2019, recorded at RMIT University. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>